Welcome to Global Conversations from Scotland, brought to you by the Scottish Council on Global Affairs. Follow us via scga.scot or on social media. And now the podcast. Good morning and welcome to the second podcast from the Scottish Council on Global Affairs. And what we're starting to do this week is we're going to look at some of the funded research projects that the Council has supported over the first year of its activities. And I'm delighted to be joined by one of our current colleagues from the University of Glasgow um, and Professor Rebecca Kay in the School of Social and Political Sciences. Good morning, Rebecca. Hi, John, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this uh, podcast series. So, yeah, my, my name is Rebecca Kay and I'm a professor in the School of Social Political Sciences at the University of Glasgow at the moment. And um, I've been working for quite some time now on issues around migration to Scotland, um, having begun by looking at uh, migration from Central Eastern Europe to Scotland and looking at issues in both urban and rural contexts. And more recently, I've been working more directly around kind of policy research and advice. Um, I chair the expert advisory group on migration and population. Um, that's an independent expert advisory group set up by the Scottish government. Um, and for a couple of years now, I've been working increasingly closely with Migration Policy Scotland, um, a small independent think tank. Uh, set up to provide evidence and insight and to support a kind of positive debate around migration uh, in and for Scotland. And it, Migration Policy Scotland were the partner um, on this insight award. Um, so our project was looking at the role of migration in, in strategic responses to rural depopulation. Um, and we were interested in the development of like multi-level policy responses um, and looking at examples from uh, different places around the world, um, really. And that was the starting point for our research. Um, and I think in terms of the kind of importance of this as a research topic, we can say, see today that the, the census data um, for Scotland has just been released, the first release of, of results from the census that was carried out in 2022 um, have just come out. And I think it's very timely to be doing this podcast today um, because that data shows that Scotland's population is at a record high of nearly 5.5 million people. But the growth in population has slowed quite considerably um, in the decade since 2011. So it's a 2.7% growth. It was 4.6, I think, in the period from 2000 to 2011. Um, and that's a slower rate of growth than in other parts of the UK. But also significantly, the findings show that the population would actually have fallen by about 50,000 without migration. So Scotland's population is not uh, reproducing itself in terms of people born uh, in Scotland. And the census also shows ongoing issues with the ageing of the population. So the largest increase is in uh, the group of people who are aged 65 and above. Uh, there's a 22.5% increase in that group, so much, much larger than the increase overall. And that there are big, uh, big geographic sorry, imbalances. So 10 local authorities have recorded a fall in population. And whilst there's a lot of growth, for example, in the Central Belt and particularly around Edinburgh, um, the Western Isles, for example, saw a 5.5% decline in population. So we can see Scotland facing population challenges that are actually very familiar across Western Europe and North America, which is that the population is ageing 
um, that the work and working population is sustained largely by migration and that there are big differences between population figures and population density in urban, largely lots of that difference is between urban and rural places, although that in and of itself is too simplistic. Uh, an explanation of geographic imbalance. I won't go into everything here, but that, you know, looking at population figures for a nation as a whole doesn't give you the full picture of what's going on and that there can be issues that need to be dealt with around population balance rather than necessarily just looking at numbers and aiming for growth um, per se. And these were part of the things that we were interested in um, in setting up this project, in thinking about the role for migration and in thinking about what Scotland can learn from other places around the world. Thank you. And in the in the scope of the, the time period you've mentioned, I mean, are, are we looking specifically or primarily at um, migration from Central Eastern Europe on while we were still a member of the European Union or is it broader than that? Um, so that's that's quite hard to say, actually. I mean, yes, um, from the 2000s, Scotland saw an uptick in population, a growth in population, where prior to that, Scotland had had a population that was declining. And that has been largely driven by migration. And certainly the analysis from 2000 to 2011 was that that growth was largely a result of free movement within the EU and increased migration um, because of that coming to Scotland. And there's been a lot of discussion and there's a lot of debate still around what's happening uh, with migration since the UK left the EU. We know that net migration across the board actually hasn't fallen, that there's record uh, numbers coming uh, as migrants to the UK as a whole. Migration statistics are notoriously difficult and the data that we have is no is is very incomplete and particularly in terms of where people go once they come into the UK. So it's very hard to unpick that picture in terms of how many people are actually coming to Scotland, to Wales, to England. But the, the data does suggest that Scotland's punching below its weight in terms of attracting migrants from that are now coming through the managed migration system, whether from the EU or from other places. And there are reasons why um, that would be difficult for Scotland and particularly difficult for more rural areas of Scotland. So there's not, for example, the long established migrant networks that would pull people um, from elsewhere to those areas of Scotland. And particularly when people are coming from um, now increasingly outside of the EU, where we have begun to get migrant networks established across Scotland, um, but where the new figures are showing people being more likely to come from places like Nigeria um, and India, then, you know, you just have to look at the figures for kind of population diversity in Scotland and it's more rural places to see why that wouldn't so quickly turn into people coming to those places. So the, the, the broader picture, if you were looking at the UK as a whole of migration is obviously fairly a, a fairly newsworthy and a fairly controversial one at the best of times. But in doing this you're you're really digging into the, the vast disparity there is within the UK or even within Scotland in terms of the, the spread and the impact of migration. Yes and actually although not directly linked to this project um, Migration Policy Scotland has re released a report today on attitudes to immigration in Scotland based on um, a, an opinion uh, 
poll that we commissioned earlier this year. And that's very striking in showing that attitudes in Scotland are quite different from the rest of the UK, um, that there's much more support in Scotland for or there's much greater understanding in Scotland uh, by the general public of the benefits of migration, that there are much smaller numbers of people wanting a reduction in migration. So only um, I think it's around one in five um, in our survey calling for a reduction in migration and about 38 percent of uh, Scottish population are actually wanting increased um, immigration. So that's a very different picture from the statistics that were released earlier in the week from a UK-wide poll. Um, so, so the picture in Scotland is different in a lot of ways. It's different in terms of the patterns of migration that we see. It's different in terms of the histories and the density of migration, but it's also different in terms of attitudes and political mes messaging. Uh, for well over a decade now, there's been cross-party consensus in Scotland that migration is actually something positive for Scotland, that Scotland needs more people. Um, a lot of local authorities in Scotland are very keen to increase their populations and see migration as part of that. Um, so it's quite a different rhetoric in Scotland, I think. And we don't know whether that's what's driving the difference in public opinion, but it's interesting to think about how it might be. The picture of migration to the UK is not uniform across the UK as a whole. Um, that would be true also if we looked at England in a more kind of nuanced way. The experience of migration in rural parts of um, northwest England is very different from what you might see on the in the southeast or around London. Um, but certainly the picture in Scotland is quite different. Um, there are different patterns of migration, different histories of migration both between Scotland and England, but also within Scotland itself. So experiences in Glasgow or Edinburgh are not the same as in the Western Isles. So in terms of this, this wider issue and, and the research project itself, who in, and, and what bodies in particular will, will this kind of data and these kind of findings affect? So if we go back to the question that was more central for this piece of research, because I've wandered off a bit into other areas there, um, it was really about looking at responses to rural depopulation. So it was interested in the impacts on communities where you've got quite uh, extreme, if you like, um, examples of population decline. And that almost always comes with population aging. So what you tend to see is that younger people are leaving. Uh, obviously, the more young people leave, the lower your birth rate becomes in an area. Um, and you then get both a decline in numbers in population, but also a greater proportion of your population being older people who need younger people to provide services and to be part of the workforce and so on in the local area. So thinking about those issues, then one of the things that is increasingly coming out internationally around policy responses to this is how best to respond. Is it best to have responses that come from kind of national government level and try to fix things and often try to intervene in quite sort of macro ways and sometimes in ways that are really quite driven by quantitative analyses of the problem. So there are fewer people, we must have more people. There is economic de decline, we must uh, generate more, more GDP, we must improve uh, the economy of these places. And none of those are invalid uh, approaches. But there's increasingly a shift towards saying, well, actually, in order to fix issues at a local level, we need place-based responses. We need to understand that the reasons for and the 
implications of population change can be very different in different places within one country. So even if you take rural Scotland, it's not the same if you're talking about somewhere on one of the Outer Isles as it might be if you're talking about somewhere maybe in, in South Ayrshire. Um, so there's been this shift internationally in rural development work and in rural population work to saying we, we need place-based responses, we need local communities to be involved, we need to think about how we address population concerns in ways that aren't necessarily about saying everywhere needs more people. And of course, another huge topic at the moment is, is climate action, climate change, the sustainability of the human population worldwide, um, where the answer can't actually continue to be that everywhere must have more people and everywhere must be um, as fully populated as it could possibly be. Um, so there's a shift there as well in terms of thinking about population and population change from a perspective of well-being and what would make places good places to live in for those people who choose to live there rather than what would make places all be somewhere that's attracting uh, more and more population all the time. And this is something that the Scottish Government has been thinking about a lot in its population strategy, which is very deliberately focused on balance rather than growth, um, and something that is quite central to deliberations around the development of an addressing depopulation action plan, which the Scottish Government's working on very actively um, at the moment. So in these kinds of discussions, you get a lot of talk around multi-level policy making and multi-level responses. Um, and that raises questions about how to do that well. How can you have multi-level approaches to a policy issue or concern where people work well together and in a coordinated way rather than it just becoming a competition um, for resource, a competition for control? Um, how can you have inputs that might be quite localised but that come together to be more than just a sum of their parts? Um, how can you know whether these things are working well or not? What sorts of measures might there be of success if you work in a way that is um, more qualitative, more place-based, more kind of more participatory rather than having a very clear set of policy directives that come from above and have very kind of measurable goals and targets attached to that? Um, so that was something we were really interested in the research. And I think we found some quite interesting and different models um, in different places. And in the end, we focused on two quite contrasting uh, models, one from Canada, where there's the rural and northern immigration pilot that has been launched by the federal government and is very specifically focused on um, attracting skilled migrant workers to rural parts of northern Canada facing population issues. So that was one example that we looked at. Um, and the other was um, a very, very bottom-up initiative begun in a tiny village um, in the Northern Pyrenees in Spain, in a village in Aragon called Atieda. Um, and I just found them fascinating for their differences, but also in a way their similarities um, as approaches. So the RNIP, as I said, is very top down. It's this this um, federal government model. Uh, it's run by um, I'm going to forget the name of the government department, but the, the government department responsible for immigration in Canada and FedNor, which is um, an economic development agency. 
but it has this element that is about empowering communities to be part of a process of deciding how to select uh, migrants who would come to a community so communities can be involved in saying well we need people with these particular specialisms to do these kinds of jobs um, they can also have criteria that are around people having connection existing connections to a place through family or through history of having lived there and some of them have really interesting criteria like you need to show that you have previously lived somewhere with a similar um rural background that you have previously lived in places with similar climate conditions um so that they're looking at ways of selecting people who the community think would settle well would be able to live in a place like theirs um, and would fill gaps that the community itself is identifying in perhaps the labor force in maintaining public services and so on and alongside that, communities are expected to play a bigger role in kind of welcome and retention. Um, so employers, but also third sector organisations are quite systematically pulled into a process of thinking about what is needed for new arrivals to be well received, to get help with orientation, access to services and support, but also to make social connections um, and to have a sense of welcome. That all said, within that programme, community itself is understood in quite sort of administrative terms. The stakeholders that are being worked with are local authorities, employers and more formal institutions, um, including third sector institutions, but still kind of more formally defined places that you might find community. And then in our other example, Atieda, everything is the other way around. It's all very bottom up. It's incredibly organic and holistic. It's an initiative that began from the local mayor's office, but very much where community is understood as everyone who lives in Artieda. And Artieda is pretty tiny. Um, so that kind of view of a place is, I suppose, possible. I think it's in the height of summer, its population is something like 120 people, and that goes down to about 80 in winter. Um, so it's a place where you can think about involving everyone, and that makes a difference. But their project started from a very deliberate process of community engagement, participatory diagnosis of what the issues were, planning and design and kind of brainstorming around different projects or different initiatives that they might develop. Um, and they worked very hard to involve everybody in the community and to bridge what was actually potentially quite a dramatic generational divide. So you've got this small village where loads of young people are leaving. There's an aging population um, and where there were really serious concerns about the kind of viability of the, the village itself um, in the longer term. And so migration actually was less of a focus to begin with. It was much more about retention and return of local young people and creation of, of opportunities for young people in, to stay in the village. But what's interesting is that they've made such a success of it that the village has actually become a bit of a magnet and they now have applications from more people to come and live in Artieda than they can currently house. Um, and so you get this interesting conundrum about actually like the local drivers for change, the local interests for change, the importance of getting a community to buy in and to be enthused and to 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 maintain that, but also that a sticking point can come around what might be called carrying capacity and whether a place can actually manage the change that it wants to see, but whether it itself has the resources to do that. So somewhere like Artieda has been very clever 
at accessing res resource. So they've done things like they set up um, two part-time posts in the mayor's office funded through the EU um, youth employment funds. So they accessed resources from outside the village to support something that was needed in the village and to create capacity for the project that they were wanting to run with young people in the village being paid to work on it. But when it comes to things like housing, they, they have to get buy-in from higher level authorities within Spain to have the investment, to have the support, to develop housing and infrastructure and, and to be able to then maintain this kind of enthusiasm that they're creating. And the other way around in, in Canada, you've got this quite top-down process and communities buying in, but some of the assessments and, and evaluations that have been done of it are saying that an area that is difficult is maintaining that community buy-in and maintaining that enthusiasm and, and actually really being able to provide the, the sort of welcome that's envisaged. So that that two-way process of keeping everybody on board and getting the resources and the input that's needed is, I think, quite a challenge and one that Scotland's likely to face if it wants to continue to develop its population policy in the way that's currently being talked about. That's interesting. And it is obviously a much more nuanced and more dialogue-based almost discussion about the need. So you're not simply, as a lot of the the framing in the UK seems to be about purely about economic need, but it's much more the, the push and the pull both for the communities, but also for the individuals who might be attracted to come in the first place. Yes, and it's interesting because I think an economic view of migration in particular, but also population is one that in a way, I wonder whether central governments hold on to it because it's a straightforward thing. And it's a relatively straightforward thing. Lots of economists might disagree with me about that, but that it, it, it feels like a relatively straightforward lever and a relatively straightforward measure that you can say, oh, well, you know, people come because there's a, a wage differential, people stay because they have a job, but that actually there's often something much more complex going on. And that that then if you if you flip the lens and you say, well, it's much more complicated than that. You also give yourself a headache because it becomes much harder to work out how to address, how to measure whether you're being successful in addressing something or not, um, and how to do that in a way that you can easily replicate across different places or across different groups of migrants or across different experiences or different groups within your population. You start having to answer some very tricky questions about are the things that would be needed to keep local young people the same as the things that would be needed to attract skilled migrants can are those two groups interchangeable or not because they're not necessarily you know is raising the birth rate um the answer i was involved in a really fascinating roundtable discussion um with the welsh government the other day talking about the same issue where there was a lot of debate around policies to raise the, the birth rate with some people there who were experts on demographics saying well the thing with raising the birth rate is actually you then get more dependence in an area more quickly than you get an increase in the labor force so you've got more children who are also dependents you haven't grown your your workforce particularly you have to wait for those children to grow up at which point they may leave if you haven't solved the issues about what isn't retaining your young people so the only quick fix if you have gaps in the labor force is for people to move into an area. Now, those could be international migrants or people moving within the country themselves, but that's the only quick way to actually fill gaps 
in the labour force, especially in an area that has a relatively low number of young people. So even if you have training and education um, initiatives, they may work to some extent. But if your 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 local youth population isn't big enough, then that isn't going to quickly mend that that problem either. So it really is looking at the other issues that that revolve around place and what makes a good place and that atmosphere to live in rather than simply just you know filling gaps on a on a kind of numerical sense. Yes and I suppose the hope with that as an approach is that there probably are things that if you can fix them for a place you will fix them both in a way that makes it a place that people who were born there are more able to stay in and makes it a place that people who come and move to it are more likely to stay and to stay longer term and to form relationships and have families and then you begin to turn around that demographic profile over time it, you you kind of revitalize rather than necessarily rejuvenate because that's very, quite an ageist way of looking at it but you you revitalize a place and make it somewhere that uh, can perhaps be more positive for all of the people who continue to live there. Well, that seems to me to be a, a perfect note on which to finish. I think we've taken up more than enough of your time because if I'm if I'm correct, you're you're moving on very soon. Is that right? Yes, um, I'm actually going to work more full time with Migration Policy Scotland and I'm I'm leaving the University of Glasgow, uh, which is not to be understood as an outcome of this project, that it means that people <laughs> leave. Um, but it certainly has been a very fulfilling project working with with MPS and I'm really excited to be going to work there more full time. Excellent. Well, well, we'll definitely be staying in touch with you, whether or not as university colleagues or not. And yes, there's there's obviously the census out this week, which which provides a lot of useful um, background to this. Your own report for for the Scottish Council, which will be on our, our website in due course, or there'll be reports on that and the and the work that you've been doing together with MPS separately. So for all of that, thank you very much. Um, and thank you for the conversation. I think it, it's really got us into some very interesting aspects of migration, which are all too easily forgotten. OK, thanks. And thanks for inviting me. Thank you very much. And uh, please tune in for our next subject and our next podcast. Thanks again. Bye. Thanks for listening to Global Conversations from Scotland. Find us at scga.scot and subscribe through your podcast provider.